Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of From the Backburner Podcast. I'm Jonathan O'Dell, your host. Um, and I want to uh, start off by uh, giving a shout out to my sponsor, Birch Barrel. Um, I, I can't tell you how much fun I have uh, cooking with this thing and, and thinking about ways to use it and, and uh, all the different variety of methods we had a, a the, the cold days are are fastly coming to an end here uh in uh, in in america and you'd be surprised uh, we had a big cold front come through arizona uh about a week ago and and dropped the temperatures and i was i was actually glad i had that birch barrel um that i could uh, instead of cooking on it actually use it for a fire to 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 be outside and uh burn some mesquite wood and, and stay warm while I was outside hanging out for a little bit. So um, if uh, if you're interested in, in getting yourself a birch barrel, visit birch, birchbarrel.com. Uh, check out everything they have. Uh, they have a big social media presence, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok even. Um, uh, check them out. They A lot of ways you can use it. Uh, recipes, you name it. Uh, but you can use my promo code burner, B-U-R-N-E-R at checkout for a 10% discount. Uh, check them out again at, at birchbarrel.com. Well, uh, this podcast has been months and months and months in the making. Um, it was, uh, uh, this is, my guest today, uh, was one I was trying to get on actually very early when I was, when I was first starting. And, uh, uh, he and I are always seem to be kind of running in opposite directions sometimes. And, uh, so we, we sat down for a couple minutes and then all of a sudden he, he, uh, he needed to make it somewhere for a, for a meeting and, uh, bailed off. And so now I, I, uh, I finally, finally coaxed him into, into joining me today. So from joining me from North Carolina, the, the, the beautiful state of North Carolina today is, is, uh, a man who, uh, it, really almost doesn't need an introduction um he has a a, a large presence uh for a long time out there uh, uh author journalist writer outdoorsman uh t edward nickens or or eddie as as we all like to call him hey eddie how you doing man i am i am super good today i'm i'm glad we could finally get you on today so yeah it's been Man, it's been almost a year since we tried to <laughs> herd these cats. We're glad it worked out. Well, and it was it was about a another year, almost two before that, when when you and I were hanging out in the in the southern Arizona deserts, uh, chasing rabbits. So, man, what a big time that was! I know we'll talk about that. That was a still still great memories. Well, for for listeners who don't know, um, Eddie is a. Uh, Jeez, I I don't want to steal your thunder. You you've got such like a, a byline. I know you you're an editor at large for Field and Stream, uh, contributing editor to Garden and Gun, uh, Audubon, Ducks Unlimited. Uh, you've contributed articles to so many different places. He's a New York Times bestselling author. Um, how many how many books at this count now do you have? Is it is it seven, eight? Um, I think it's. I think it's six, Jonathan. Is it six? I'm, I'm looking over at my bookshelf, but I think about about six. The first one, the the New York Times one that you referred to, was the the original Total Outdoorsman, um, and then we had a couple of iterations of the Total Outdoorsman, and then uh, last year uh, had an anthology published, a collection called The Last Wild Road, and then in April I'll have. Uh, the latest of the Total Outdoorsman series uh, will come out, uh, the Total Camping Manual um, in association with Field Streams. Yeah, it's been a fun ride. It's it's cool that you kind of have, have carried on that tradition of, of Field and Stream, uh, I guess, like compendium books. Um, 
you know, that, that I have, I have some on my bookshelf. I know I, I sent you a picture of one that, that you hadn't even heard of before, um, that field and stream over its history has, has every once in a while, one of the editors or something will compile a book of, you know, the, the best hunting stories or, or aspects and, and kind of, you know, put it out there for folks. Yeah. You know, when we, when we sat down to do the first one, we realized when I, when I grew up, as I was growing up, there were tons of these, these books, the complete book of outdoor lore by outdoor law. There were all of the, if you remember the deer hunters Bible, the hunters Bible, archers Bible, there, there was this, there, there, there was this little industry of these, of these how to books. And, and I don't know, you know, in the nineties, eighties, they seemed to kind of go by the wayside. People were looking for information delivered in a different way. So there weren't there weren't a lot of them published, and and it was it was fun when Fielded Stream sat down to to come up with a really modern way of publishing a how to book uh, to be there at sort of the beginning of that and help help craft what that could all look like. That, that was that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I I was a little concerned when you when you put out the the recent book, The Last Wild Road. Um, I didn't know because of the the title. I didn't know if that was an ominous name of of Hey, I'm saying goodbye, and this is kind of my my farewell piece or not. Um, and no, concern. No, 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 fare, no farewell piece at, at all. Uh, the last wild road was the it was the name of a of a great of a great story. Um, but no, I'm I'm sticking around. I'm not I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> well, I, it, with that, you know, I mean, obviously, I, they say that you know, if if you're a uh, if you're a writer, um, you also tend to be a reader. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm sure you, in your, your spare time, find, find enough to enough time to, to be able to read quite a bit. Are there, are there three books that you would recommend to folks? I know, um, books sometimes seem to have fallen out of favor, uh, with, with, you know, social media and the new kind of way of getting information, but are there three outdoor books that you would recommend, uh, to my listeners? Three outdoor books. Um, I'll tell you who uh, a very important writer for me was, uh, two of them. The first would be John McPhee. And so I would say any of his collected works in terms of just, and, th- and they're not necessarily out- outdoor books, um, but he writes, McPhee is a writer for The New Yorker and a professor at Princeton University. And his way of approaching nonfiction is, Pretty spectacular, you know. And I read, I read fiction. Jim Harrison. I'd say go to any of the great Jim Harrison books. The Beast That God Forgot to Invent uh, would be one title from Jim Harrison that I would suggest reading. That was uh, one of the epigrams in the Last Wild Road. Uh, was a line from Jim Harrison um, that said, uh, "If I can get it right, the danger of civilization." of course, is that we will piss away our lives on nonsense. So <laughs> kind of hard to, hard not to appreciate that perspective. Yeah. Well, very cool. Very cool. Um, you know, you have, uh, for, I, I don't want to date you here. I know you, I mean, you've, you've been around a, a long time writing and, and, and covering stories and, uh, yeah, I've been around long enough now that I've gotten past really caring if people know how long I've been around. (laughs) Yeah. I went freelance and, uh, I had one job out of college, uh, that lasted about two and a half years, but I've been, I've been freelance writing since 1988. No, 1988. Yeah. Put that in your your pipe and smoke it. Well, I, I think I've probably been reading your articles uh, since about then. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> to date, yeah. To date my own self, um, seeing seeing your byline around. Um, so you've you've traveled around the world, hunted a lot of different places, a lot of different things. Is there is there one place in particular that that stuck with you? One one hunting or fishing kind of expedition that really you know what was unforgettable wow 
I mean, there've I mean, been, of course, of course, aside from hunting with me, I mean, you know, <laughs> well, you know, we're going to, we'll set, we'll set that aside. We'll put that under my script later. Um, I mean, there have definitely been unforgettable, unforgettable moments, Jonathan. Um, as for a particular place, uh, there, there is a particular place that I have wanted to return to for about 15 years and I never have. Um, I'm not going to say the name of the river, but it's a river in the Northwest Territories um, that I only spent a day on, but it was one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. And the thought of paddling in and spending a week feeding yourself pike and ducks is something that is is going to get done here uh, in the next few years. I'm I'm convinced of it. Um, so yeah, that would be the yeah. That's the one place that I kind of wake up thinking I ha- I have to go back there. I've got to go back there. Pike and duck sound like a pretty good duo um, to to put together on a plate for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's a it would it would be a lot of fun. It would be a lot of fun. I love you know me. I love cooking ducks and I, I love uh, and I've eaten a lot of pike. I enjoy pike too. Yeah, yeah. Are you a fan of the pickled pike? You know, I don't where I live down here in the balmy south, pickled pickled pike is not exactly on an everyday plate. Um but I like I like pickled meats, so I'd say I would like a pickled pike. You know, we're getting ready to start into the shad season right now. Um as a matter of fact, I just put a coat of marine epoxy on a new John boat floor that I'm uh I've, I've cut out. And and shad is one of those sort of pike like fishes in in regards to folks turn their nose up at the at the taste and the and the and the thought of eating these bony things um but you know folks like you and i that's that's just a that's just a good challenge to take (laughs) for sure for sure so you know aside from from covering um outdoor writing i mean you've had your fair share of of recipes and things that that you've uh produced and put out there in, in different magazines. Is there, is there any that you're like most proud of? I'm, I'm most proud of changing people's minds. I think I, I just two nights ago, last day of quail, quail season in North Carolina was Monday. Uh, so on Sunday night, I was at a, it was at a, at a quail lodge um, where I'd been before and they were, they were disparaging the duck as a table bird. And I told them the next time I came that I'd cook duck, uh, for them and, and change their minds. Um, and I, and I did, I had two redheads from North Dakota and uh, a couple of really nice fatty mallards from, from Mississippi. Um, you know, cooked them simply, but I'll tell you, everybody walked away shaking their head, saying they'd never had, never had anything like it. And I'm not saying that's a that that means that I'm a great waterfowl cook. It means there's a lot of really really crappy waterfowl cooks out there. Um, yeah. But that's yeah, those kinds of recipes that really really stick out are the ones where people go, damn, that was good. <laughs> I didn't even think it was going to be edible, and that was great. Yeah, I, I I actually enjoy um, uh, changing people's minds and stuff like that. I I I, I hearken back to when you and I first uh, contacted each other and, and talked um, was after the 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 second win for the Arizona BHA um, chapter there and uh, for the the cookoff and and uh, uh, that that particular meal was uh, jackrabbit rattlesnake and and cactus. And, uh, I know when I, when I, when I, we, Arizona's BHA chapter, um, you know, is pretty serious about the cookoffs and stuff. And when they invited me to, to, to join the team and, and, and help them out that, that second year to try and, and make a win, uh, it, and I broached the subject, I said, okay, you know, we were trying to figure out what to cook and what everyone has in their freezers and what's available to us. And, and, uh, you know, I started thinking about, you know, all the other teams were up against and, and what they, they bring to the table. And, and I said, you know, I said, here's a crazy idea. Why don't we cook the worst things we've got? Um, or, or, or things that, that people think, you know, uh, have a, 
have a have a misconception about that that you know hunters would even turn their nose up to and i said you know jackrabbit's one of the main ones and then i said you know uh rattlesnake and cactus i mean you know people people wouldn't imagine you know these three things <laughs> all together on a on a plate for a meal and and uh, uh obviously it worked um you know i it, Change, changing hearts and minds is is absolutely right when it comes to to, to cooking something a little different, you know. Um, yeah, that sounds like sort of the unholy trinity of, of Arizona there. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I and I also applaud the way that you approach cooking in 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 one particular respect, trying to marry you know, a local game animal or fish with some sort of local plant, some sort of some sort of uh, something else that you bring to the table that speaks of a sense of, of a sense of place. Um, yeah. I, I think that helps people understand that, you know, we're trying to, we're not trying to get fancy, but we're trying to sort of elevate uh, the approach to, to wild game cooking um, and not, not into the stratosphere, but you're definitely away from the camel's cream and mushroom soup can. Yeah, and I, I I would say I mean you've had a chance to kind of watch this over the years this this transition I guess or what I what I kind of like to refer to is is this resurgence or renaissance of wild game cooking here in America that's that's taken hold and and really transforming something we haven't seen since the market hunting days. Um, you know what what it means to have game on your plate. Um, do you have any thoughts on on kind of what you've been seeing and and. But I, I've I've been seeing people willing to just throw everything out that they thought they knew about cooking in terms of how to sear and what's the right temperatures and how long to cook and and just look at wild game not as an extension of the kind of cooking that they've been doing for all of their lives, but as something totally different that you approach with a totally fresh perspective um, and without preconception. And that's been, I think, sort of the the fuel the fuel in the rocket. Um, people are not trying to cook wild game like they cook everything else. They realize it's a it's its own thing, um, you know. And the, and the other thing is, I think there's still this sense of it, it can be everyday food as well. And that's one thing we have to be careful about as we're presenting wild game cooking. In, in, in my opinion. Um, you know, the cook-offs like BHA does, some of these events, are f- they're fabulous. Um, and it shows how far you can push the envelope with wild game cuisine. But, you know, yesterday for lunch, I dumped seven dove breasts in a saucepan with a jar of the cheapest barbecue sauce I had and simmered it for an hour and ate it for lunch. There was nothing elevated about that. It was every day food which up until the last 10 years is what this stuff was anyway so i do think we have to be we have to be careful um i think you get you get this with the pushback sometimes with a like a venison backstrap if you try to do something different with a venison backstrap and you're stuffing it with jalapenos you're marinating it yeah, we'll we'll run these recipes in the magazine and we'll always hear from somebody oh you're ruining all you need is salt and pepper um well, 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 yeah, if you're going to eat one backstrap a year, but if you're going to eat eight, then you've got to have some, got to have some variety. Right. Right. No, it's, it's, uh, it, yeah, I've, I've, I've seen a little bit of the, you know, obviously some folks can really push, uh, the boundaries of, of what, you know, we thought, uh, game meat could be and could do. And, and, and you're right. I mean, kind of throwing, throwing all what you've what you know about cooking out the window i mean uh you know gordon ramsay's perfect steak of of you know sear and then into the oven uh only works because you know all the cows and the steaks are from cows that are exactly the same age and, and the exact same thing and where you might have a uh you know a a, a hatch year mallard or you might have a mallard that's eight years old and and they don't uh certainly that that time and and energy you're putting into cooking that that eight-year-old mallard could cook for a whole lot longer than than that eight-month-old mallard uh you know in in terms of tenderness and juiciness and and everything else so uh 
I found that, yeah, I mean, it, probably the biggest thing for me is just how much time uh, I devote to, you know, every animal I'm cooking because everyone's different. Uh, they don't all come out the same. It's uh, I often go back to the, the traditional uh, squirrel and gravy uh recipe fried squirrel and gravy you know the the big secret that that i think everyone kept hidden for a long time is you got to have young of the year squirrels versus <laughs> versus the old ones that that uh have a little more toughness you know if you're going to try that that dish with it so yeah and i think it's fun how we sort of I, mean, I don't know how you do your your freezers i've got i've got two freezers and man i am i am very careful in labeling but if I'm going to go to the trouble of shooting it and dragging it and bringing it home and hauling it in here to the laundry table uh, outside my office and butcher it, I, I go I go to 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 some some trouble to label everything correctly and put it away so I know where things are. Like like a like a venison backstrap. If if I cut a venison backstrap into three pieces, I label which which is which so i'll know you know there's one end is better than the other um and and taking that kind of care about the wild game i I think people are people are really sort of into that um and that's going to result in in a better product on the table every, every time yeah and i i do enjoy um you know i think for a while it was uh and and not to to certainly disparage any any processors but a lot of times you know when when folks would take an animal to a processor you kind of get the standard fare of cuts and and you know products afterwards so much grind so much sausage so you know whatever you want to do but when when you kind of do the butchering yourself uh you have this this freedom to be like okay you know maybe maybe i want a different cut that that i haven't had before you know i i see a lot more of uh of, uh, uh, you know, rib on, uh, uh, backstraps, um, that, that folks are kind of experimenting with and, and playing with. So that's, that's to me is always kind of fun too, is, is some of the different cuts that you may not. And I love whole cuts. I mean, I, uh, just recently I was, I was hanging out with, uh, um, Johan Magnuson, a big Swede, and I had a, an entire bone in ham off a of coos white-tailed deer and, and, uh, you know, he was, he was talking to me. I said, yeah, let me bring some game over. And he's like, what do you got? And I'm checking through the freezer. And I was like, man, I got this, I got this whole ham. He's like, you want to break it into pieces? And I was like, why would we do that? Let's just barbecue the, the whole bone in ham and, and give that a shot. See what we can do with that. And it, it's turned out beautifully. You had some, some different texture to, uh, to the cuts we were having out of the meat and stuff. So, um, it was, it was fun to experiment and play with. Yeah. And I, I encourage folks to, I mean, the butchering can be off-putting. There's, there's no doubt. And I don't, I don't know, Jonathan, if it's a, if it's a geographic thing or not. But in the, in the South, I live in North Carolina. Very few, very few people butcher their own deer. Um, you know, you, 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 you see. I don't, I don't know what it's like in Arizona. Um, in another sort of hot climate, you know, it can be 85 degrees here during during parts of deer season, and so you do have to plan plan ahead but i don't know what the percentages are but i'd I'd guarantee you nine out of ten deer go to a processor um and i started butchering my own deer years ago i mean it's something that i plan for you know it takes four hours by the time i get it in the house and wash all the knives at the end of the process um but it's something i look forward to I, i enjoy it and you're right that notion of planning for different cuts, thinking about different meals as you're, as you're going through the process. It, it's, it's something I'd, I'd never do it any other way. Yeah. Um, it, you, you, I, I didn't want to let this lie cause you just made a, a quick little comment about knives. Um, uh, during our hunt together, I, I found out, I think, uh, I don't know how big of a secret it is, but, but you're a bit of a, of a purveyor connoisseur of fine knives. Um, <laughs> I, I do like a I do like a good blade. I always have to tell folks you have to understand. I get sent a lot of good knives, <laughs> so it makes it a little easier to be a connoisseur. But uh, yeah, I I have gotten to the point to where I'm just not going to use a crappy knife. Um, I'll carry knives 
with me uh, if I think I'm going to be doing any any cutting or butchering or cooking it at all on an assignment. Um, it's just a it's just a it's a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. I, I what I guess a, a tag along question to that is is what do you look for uh, in a good knife? Like as far as you're concerned, what makes a good knife? And of course, we have a lot of different areas that that knives fit into. Uh, you know, your your kitchen fare or your butchering knives or you know your field knives. Is it, is there anything in particular like you look for in in a knife, or is it just kind of all across the the map? Well, I, I do. Across categories, I'd say uh, the very first thing I look for is the steel, um, is what is the steel that's used in the knife. Um, I mean, there's just so many, so many amazing steels. And there's some really, really great uh, older traditional steels um, that there's just no, there's just no reason to buy a knife with crappy, with crappy steel. Um and so that's one of the first things that I look at. Um, I, I like buying knives from from local knife makers that that maybe are on the up and coming and aren't super well known, so I don't have to pay a whole lot of money for them. Um, but you know, to to pay for a lot of people to pay two hundred fifty dollars for a culinary knife, they they think you're nuts when you can, you know, for Twenty nine ninety nine, you can buy a set of eight at the Walmart, uh, but it's just not a lot of money when you think about how much it's going to be in your hand, you day after day, week after week, year after year. Uh, so I have put together a pretty fun collection of culinary knives, um, and I've got a bunch of field knives. I've got a bunch of field knives, but I, but I have I like using sort of one field knife for just about everything. My everyday carry knife is my deer skinning knife my wedding cake cutting knife my pick my toes knife you name it uh it it's just feels wonderful in my hand and so I, I do like finding that one knife that you feel like you know you can just you can just live with yeah i i uh, personally um one of my my best field knives and and i like it because of the the belly and uh that it, that's on the knife and and everything and it's it's super affordable but the 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 mora knives um oh. which, are, which are very inexpensive and and all that i they they have been a a, a great field knife as far as a, a multi-purpose you know um use out in the field knife and stuff um i've done so much you know, butchering, skinning, different things with them. It, they're, they're, they're just great as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, I, and I've, I've got a few knives that are, I, I spent a divorce level of money, um, in Japan, uh, <laughs> a number of years ago, uh, on a, on a, I wanted a chef's knife from one yeah. of the, the really well-known <laughs> manufacturers in, uh, in Tokyo. Uh, that's an old family that, that, uh, um, you know, made swords for the the samurais and stuff, and continued on bladesmithing and and all that. But I wanted a really good uh, chef's knife uh, from them that that single bevel edge, real thin Japanese steel. Um, and uh, so, thankfully, my wife didn't know how much I spent until the credit card uh, bill came in later. But uh, uh, still, still use it to this day. It's it's a fantastic knife. But um, it, switching switching gears a little bit. Um, so, uh, the reason why I, 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 I know, uh, Eddie has a, has a fascination with knives aside from the fact that he actually has a, a knife book, uh, as well. But, uh, when, when Eddie and I went out to the field to, to go rabbit hunting, um, I had a, a, a case pocket knife that I pulled out and he kind of eyeballed it and was, was looking around to see exactly what I was carrying. What it would, what, did that, did that tell something, uh, to you about me, Eddie, or, or, <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting. You don't see a lot of case knives um, right. out there. Uh, and it, it's not a knife that that I have a particular affinity for. Um, I'm trying to remember what knife that was. It was like a trapper style yep. um, three blade. Yeah. yeah, with the sheep's foot. And- yeah, yeah. I, I, for me personally, I just I get nervous without a lockback. Um, and that probably has as much to do with the fact that 
I'm clumsy as, as, as anything. Um, but you know, uh, I don't know that it said that it said anything about you, your choice of rifles. Uh, I found interesting, not, not the models, but that you carried these two rifles, uh, for different purposes out, different uses out there. That, that told me you, A, were serious about old Mr. Jackrabbit, and B, that you really knew what you were doing. And you, you, showed, <laughs> that, you showed that for sure. Yeah, that the the infamous uh, Jack Walker and the Jack Hammer, two two purpose built uh, twenty two rifles just for just for hunting jackrabbits out there in the in the desert. Because um, you run into different terrains, and so I I got a, a red dot optic on the one for for close quick shots when when everything's thick, and then I've got the the scoped out rifle for for a little bit more distance when uh, like when when you saw we were down there. I mean, some of those rabbits were breaking. Uh, on us, you know, at a good distance. So, yeah, I was, I was, in, I was impressed with that hunt. That was, that was a lot of fun. And you know, some of that hunting was pretty tough with the with those high winds. But man, I enjoyed every, I enjoyed every bit of it. That was, that was a kick. That was a yeah. kick. And it was fun for us talking about this sort of fascination with small game and sort of the historical context for for some of that camping out under the desert man cooking jackrabbits in the ground that's good living there yeah yeah just uh uh throwing jackrabbits in a in a dutch burying it with a bunch of coals and and going out to hunt for a little while coming back to a hot meal and and uh that was that's it's kind of the life sometimes you know um i i really enjoy that uh quite a bit what's sad is like right after that hunt obviously um covid struck and uh actually it was kind of it was it was already kind of starting i think when you had come out and we were hearing the 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 early you know i think because it was february i believe and and you know we were hearing the early early ramifications of hey there's a, a you know virus going around affecting people and all that and then wouldn't you know it uh right after that the rabbits got hit with uh uh the disease of their own uh rabbit hemorrhagic disease type 2 uh, oh, in the, the area that we were hunting that hit the southwest it it, it started in new mexico and and kind of lit on a wildfire it uh, it it hit cottontails and blacktails and antelope jacks and and uh you name it i mean it was it was pretty it was the first time in this country that i think we'd seen that disease so um really took off like a wildfire i know it made it out uh i think almost to kansas and uh burned up into nevada and california just i mean every place in between what kind of losses were you were you looking at oh it was it was significant there were there were lots and lots of rabbits um rhdv2 was it was something completely new and and uh it was uh five days from infection to death um it was a it was a really fast killer uh and then of course i had to i had to go on the radio and 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 right at easter time to talk about the 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 rabbit disease which which uh uh you know was was just kind of wouldn't you know the timing you know um yeah oh man that's tough yeah it's been a couple of years of sort of learning how to handle uh, this new reality you know i don't know if this is anything you want to you know get into but the the notion of you know the future of wild game as a as a safe food resource you know yeah. i think those are conversations we're going to start having yeah um you know obviously the the pandemic um you know when when folks were trying to social distance and stay away from everyone they all went out to the woods and there was just this huge influx of of people that you know um aside from your normal uh hunting cadre that you have every year there was you know I, the, the guys who were maybe the once every five years or whatever, and they all kind of went out to the field together. Um, I mean, I was hearing reports from uh, a, a number of states with, you know, turkey tag sales um, just exploding and, and mm-hmm. you know, more folks out in the woods and, uh, you know, just kind of getting back to hunting. Um, and I don't know if it was based on a food security or just, you know, hey, I'm tired of you know, being stuck at home and I'd much rather be walking around out in the woods with a gun or something. Um, yeah. It might've been as much the latter as anything else, but then they discovered what a good old bushy tail tastes like and gloves are off. 
for sure. Um, yeah, it's 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 kind of a a, a weird paradox in in a way that you know a lot of times I think uh, folks for a while were trained to think of a wild game as as diseased or or you know like. Um, you know, they it would constantly overcook game. I think is is what it was because it you know it, it was from the outside and it was dirty and and things like that. And and the reality of it is, a lot of times you end up ruining uh, game meat by by overcooking it like that. And um, but uh, now, yeah, it's 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 almost seen as as kind of a safer <laughs> a, a safer meat source. Um, yeah, uh, for sure. Um, you know, I. I jokingly tell folks, you know, I'm a, I'm a vegetarian. Uh, I, I just eat, I just eat acorns that have been highly processed through the four chambers of a, of a deer stomach. Um, <laughs> you know, but when you look at, when you look at it that way, I mean, you're, you know, you're sort of ingesting the wild when you're, when you're partaking of a of, of, of wild game, it's a, I mean, it's just, I think it's a, it's a really healthy, balanced approach to, to doing what we do. Yeah. Well, and, and I think, you know, if, if people, um, you know, kind of, kind of look at this pandemic as well and, and, you know, obviously the, the origins of this, this virus was, was kind of in question and, and it was, it was zoonotic in nature, uh, you know, jumping from, you know, one species, uh, into the, the, the human, which is what classifies a zoonotic disease. Uh, you know, in the past, there's things like, you know, bird flu and, and, you know, avian influenza, uh, swine flu, a lot of those things. And so our, our relationship with, uh, diseases and things like that, as it relates to, to wild animals, as well as domestic, um, you know, is, is, it's interesting to say the least, you know, of, of how, the thought process is, I mean, that's why, you know, at least with migratory birds, that's, they travel, you know, probably the globe second only to humans in terms of a a source for, for transmission of things. So. Yeah, it'll, I think the question is still unanswered as to how ultimately this notion of wildlife disease is going to play out within, within the, the hunting and fishing world. Um, I mean, it's certainly something we've seen with chronic wasting disease, you know, and, and coronavirus as well, showing up in wild deer populations. I mean, that's going to be something that we're all sort of watch really, really closely here over the next few years. Yeah. I mean, obviously we've had a lot of, of, uh, wildlife specific diseases, you know, the chronic wasting disease and, and EHD and, and a number of things that have, you know, taken their toll in certain parts of the country, um, with, with deer populations and, and things like that. Obviously, as I mentioned earlier, the RHDV2 that kind of hit the Southwest and, and rabbits and, uh, things like that. It's, you know, certainly something to, to, that we watch and monitor for, um, that, uh, uh, has, has an impact, um, you know, long-term as well as short-term. I mean, you know, some of my, my favorite rabbit honey holes are, are, are a little scarce these days until, you know, we have hopefully a few good years to, to bring them back as well as I know, you know, folks in the Dakotas who had that, uh, uh, HD breakout of in deer and, and things like that. Um, wasn't there something out your neck of the woods too, um, in the not too recent past or. Well, there's been, a lot of concern over coronavirus um, yeah. showing up in whitetail deer populations. Most of that work, I believe, has been done in Pennsylvania and in the Northeast. Um, but I can't think of any other any other issues, you know, other than we're all going to be taken away by ticks and chiggers before the end <laughs> of the world comes. But <laughs> well, and that's it, you know that's a, a whole other thing, um, you know, uh, that was. It, kind of has, has lost its, its, its prominence a little bit, but there was the, uh, the alpha gal disease from Lone Star ticks that, uh, it, you know, folks who got bit by them suddenly were allergic to red meats. Yeah. Um, it'd be pretty prominent if you were a victim of that. That's for sure. <laughs> well, and, and it's my understanding, a friend of mine, his, his wife, uh, uh, got bit, um, and, and, had to develop the, the allergies and stuff, but I guess, uh, in learning through him that, that it kind of affects everyone a little differently. So there's mm-hmm. some meats or some proteins that, that are okay for some people, not for others. And so he had to kind of learn a whole new way of cooking for his wife. He would, he'd end up cooking two different meals for dinner, you know, w- one for his wife and one for him and his kids. So, yeah, uh, yeah. certainly challenging. 
Well, hey, I I, uh, I wanted to mention, you know, if, if Eddie isn't busy enough uh, writing uh, in his in his uh, fortress of solitude, there um, he's joining <laughs> me from today. Uh, it's uh, you know, it's giving back. You have uh, uh, kind of a uh, another um, avenue or or. Uh, 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 job uh, title that you have you you're a, a board member of, um, for the uh, backcountry hunters and anglers north american uh, board of, of directors yeah um i've been on the board for uh, i believe six years jonathan i've been secretary of the executive committee uh of the board for two terms been in my second term with that now and that has been uh I mean, that has been one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. Um, certainly because it put me into contact with you. That's, that's definitely the greatest, the greatest <laughs> benefit uh, of that relationship. Um, but it has been, uh, it's been something I'm super passionate about. And I've worked with a lot of conservation organizations over the years and not to take anything away from all their great work. But like a lot of BHA members, I did I did feel like I found my people. That's that's a that's a phrase you hear a lot within the BHA community, um, and I definitely I definitely felt that way uh, when I when I fell in with that crowd and with Land Tawney, who I who I knew uh, and had worked with when he was with the National Wildlife Federation before before he moved over to BHA. Um, so that's yeah, that's been a that's been a that's been an awesome experience. Well, yeah, and I, I, six years. Obviously, you know, you, you've been able to see a lot of this transition and ground that BHA has has made. Um, you know, much much kind of the same way I was. I it, it really opened my eyes. I think you know when I uh, when I first went up to rendezvous there in Boise and and uh, you know just to see what was going on and and the diversity of folks and uh, I, that was really uh, honestly that that's kind of the encapsulating word of what just punched me in the face when I walked in at Boise was, was diversity. Uh, you know, it was, it was diversity in so many ways. I mean, of, of political thought, uh, you know, uh, gender, ethnicity, and just age. Um, there was, there was a lot of young people, some older people, it was kind of a good mix versus, you know, I think what you see, um, kind of the, the stereotypical idea of the, you know, the, the old white guy that, that seems to dominate, uh, most hunting circles. Um, this was, this was kind of new and fresh and just, you know, I, I was, I was trying to take it all in, in the, in the midst of, of cooking a meal and, and, <laughs> and, uh, just enjoying my time there, um, with the events and stuff at that annual, annual get together. So. Yeah, it's been, it's been fun to see, uh, on that diversity piece, the, the geographic range sort of expand as well. I, I, I believe I was the, I believe I was the first uh, national or North American board member from the, from the East, uh, certainly from the South. And I think that was one of the reasons Land wanted me to be, in, be involved was to, to, was to help that organization grow its, uh, its identity, I suppose. Um, and we've seen that be super, super successful, very, very strong chapters, uh, in the Northeast and the mid Atlantic and the Southeast. Um, that's been something I've been, been really proud to, to be, to, to, to play a small role with that. Yeah. It's, uh, it, I, I think it helped to educate me as, as well as you did. I mean, as well as, uh, I, I remember my time fondly in North Carolina when I was there at Fort Bragg with the army and, and, uh, I got out to hunt a few times there. Um, hunting with shotguns was, was kind of a new, uh, experience for me. Um, but it, but it solidified my, my, my mindset of, of, uh, shot sizes, you know, when you talk about buckshot, okay, that's actually, you know, <laughs> the reason why it's called buckshot is for deer. I was like, Oh, okay. You know, I just thought, oh, okay. You know, some, some old West term or something like that. No, it's, it's actually for hunting deer. And, uh, but the amount of public lands in North Carolina, you know, I mean, uh, when I think a lot of people here in the West consider, you know, like we just have vast open expanses of, of public lands. Um, and you start, you know, thinking about, you know, states in the East or, you know, where it's, it's mostly, you know, private and, and actually there's quite a bit of public land, um, there in the, in the East and in the South. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, here in North Carolina, we have 2 million acres 
of public hunting and fishing lands. Um, a million acres of national forest, a part of that. Uh, we've also got two million acres of estuarine waters, of sounds on the coast. We've got the most estuarine waters than any other lower 48 state than Louisiana. So four million acres of public public lands and public waters to roam around on and hunt and fish is not an insignificant amount. Um, no, that's not small potatoes. <laughs> no, you know, and I live in Raleigh. I, mean, I live in a big city. Uh, and a lot of people are surprised at what a rich heritage we still have uh, of hunting and fishing. Um, I'm only two and a half hours from the coast. So, I mean, there is a very, very strong, strong tradition of saltwater fishing and duck hunting in the coastal marshes. Um, but, you know, there's there's this growing interest in sort of, it wasn't niche at the, at, at the time, but, you know, small game hunting, squirrel hunting, uh, rabbit hunting, all these other ways of expressing that love of the outdoors. So, yeah, so I'm, 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 I, I, always, I, I don't, I really appreciate the fact that the West is this iconic um, space with these, with these big charismatic animals that, that we aspire to pursue. Uh, but I tell the folks in North Carolina, I tell the folks in the South, we don't, we don't play second fiddle to anybody uh, when it comes to, to our love of the pursuit of the wild, no doubt about it. Yeah. And I, I think, I think that's what I appreciate probably the most about the South is, is kind of over the last hundred years in the South, um, you know, it, there's been a lot of transition in, uh, hunting and, and things like that. And, and, you know, the South kind of really almost epitomized the, the, the standard bearer of, of carrying hunting, you know, forward and, and all that, where, you know, the, a lot of the big game stuff, uh, was lost, you know, it, it, towards the, the, the end of market hunting and all that. And, and, you know, you, you were lucky if you, if you saw deer tracks, let alone a deer in the South for a long time. And so small game hunting, like rabbits and quail and squirrels and stuff kind of carried, uh, hunters, you know, through that lean time until, um, a lot of the successes in conservation came about and, and bringing back white-tailed deer and turkeys and and things like that that, that we kind of know today uh where you know the the big game in the west really you know never uh, hit that point and so being in the west you know i'm 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 very aware of of you know how big game centric i think a lot of the hunting is in the west and and uh how much opportunity i have at my fingertips for for small game hunting that most of the other hunters don't take advantage of so it, i'm kind of blessed and cursed all at the same time with that uh, yeah you know we talked we talked about that in arizona this notion of uh if, if you're a if you're a small game hunter you've got you just i mean the calendar is yours practically year round certainly out there in arizona and to a large extent even in even in north carolina um so it's a it's a I love, I love, I love where I live, uh, and I love hunting and fishing across the South. And I'm fortunate that I, I get to, I get to travel quite a bit out in your neck of the woods and the other side of Old Man River and see what the West is all about. Um, you know, we're all, but you know, back back to the wild game cooking. I, I think that's one thing that is attracting people to the idea of wild game cooking is that. In the end, it is a it's just a celebration of of where they are, uh, of where they're of where they're rooted, um, and it's a celebration of of the time you spend in in some of your most familiar places. Um, I mean, I love I, mean, I love the fact that I've got still a few leftover cuts from a Maine moose in the freezer, and I've got birds from the Dakotas, and but you know what? I've got wood ducks. That I that I shot this year in a swamp where I've I've killed wood ducks for years and years and years, man. And when I pull that when I pull that baggie out of the freezer and it says horse swamp wood ducks, man, it just it roots me to a place that I've seen the sun come up countless times, and there's there's nothing else I'd rather have on my plate. Oh no, that's I'm I'm a little jealous of how many wood ducks you guys actually have out there. I, <laughs> I, I they're, they're, they're a tasty treat, I'll tell you. 
They are. They're 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 uh, not only are they gorgeous, but yeah, they're they're delicious. And and uh, yeah, I, I see videos and stuff of of all these wood ducks pouring down into a hole and <laughs> in the east and eastern hardwoods. And I'm like, oh man, like one of these days, one of these days, I gotta I gotta get out there and 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 experience some some heavy wood duck hunting. I've got little pockets around here like really small and, and i get an opportunity every once in a while but um so yeah. I, I i do cherish the wood duck a whole lot when i when i when i get one on the plate so yeah it's a good it's a good bird you know but there's i mean i love i love all waterfowl i love cooking all all waterfowl i won't turn my nose up at a shoveler uh i, I like it all well, maybe sea ducks but that's, that's a little on the edge but everything else mergansers are kind of hard for me <laughs> mergansers are mergansers are tough my dog the last merganser i shot uh and it, the first merganser i'd shot in a long time i thought well at least the dog will eat it and the dog would not eat it i threw the, <laughs> I, I cut the breast out and tossed it down there and nothing doing and i thought you know I'm not the smartest, smartest guy in the world, but if the dog's not going to eat it, I'm not going to try. <laughs> maybe, maybe he was, maybe he was looking for a little elevation in, in, in his, his merganser steak uh, yeah. as well. So, well, I, you know what, Ed, I know you've got to run, but, uh, I appreciate your time. I'm, I'm glad we could connect. Uh, hopefully, you know, if, if you make it back out here, uh, this way, some of these times, you know, you can always drop a call. Um, you are, you're, you're more than welcome in camp to hunt anytime, man. Well, I've still got a little file going about the dove hunting that we talked about. So you might find me in your backyard before too much longer. Oh yeah. If yeah, the best, best dove hunting outside of Argentina right here in the United States, boy, it's a, it's, it's quite the experience. I, I hope we can get you out here. So, um, and I got to get out, like, like I said, hopefully maybe I got to lean on you to, to line up a, a wood duck, black duck hunt, maybe out there in North Carolina. So we can do it. We can do it. <laughs> put you in a, put you in a canoe and get you in the middle of them. I'd appreciate it. That would be yeah. awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks again. Hey, uh, folks, I appreciate you listening in as well. Um, stay tuned for the, the next episode of from the Backburner podcast and we'll talk to you soon.